This is a conversation with Babette Rothschild. Hi, Babette. Hi, Serge. So, you know a lot about trauma. Um, I certainly have done some studying and some researching and have had a good amount of experience. I um, think of myself as a specialist in the field. Uh, we were talking before the we started recording, and I was telling you that I... I like to to say a disclaimer uh, mm-hmm. when I start lectures and at the beginning of all of my books. And I really would, for the people who are listening now, like to do the same, if that's all right. Mm-hmm. My disclaimer is that what I talk about when I talk about trauma and really probably anything else, and what we're going to talk about here now is theory and speculation. There's nothing in the field of trauma studies, trauma treatment, psychology, really, that's um, that's hard facts. And actually, if you think about it, there's very little in science and medicine that's hard facts. Things, knowledge changes all the time. And, you know, we know that as we can even look at the history of body psychotherapy and see how body psychotherapy has, has changed, even in my lifetime in body psychotherapy over the last 30-some years, how body psychotherapy is practice has changed and evolved and you know in medicine medications and and treatments come on the market and then get pulled again when they find out that that they weren't the the quality that they thought they were etc um antonio damasio who probably most of the people who are listening know who's a marvelous neurologist and his book descartes error i think should be read by everybody psychotherapist it's such a um, uh, uh, a brilliant um, uh, expose of the relationship of mind and body from mm-hmm. the neurology point of view. But anyway, Antonio Damasio, he says that what we have in science are approximations, and we use the best ones that we have until better ones come along. And I really like to state this disclaimer so that people know that when I'm speaking, no matter how authoritative I sound, that I actually know that what I'm talking about are my own opinions and that I'm respecting other people's opinions. And and I, I like to say I get paid for my opinion. I don't get paid to be right. Yeah. yeah. And so, so, so really a, a sense of um, saying that as you speak, you know, authoritative, with authority, it's not a way of imposing a point of view as being the truth, but actually this is a part of a stimulating conversation where people's thinking is hopefully stimulated by what you say. Um, that would be my aim. I'm human like everybody else, and I can certainly be very attached to my opinions and argue for them very um, with a lot of strength, and I still know that they're opinions. And I, I think it's very important that we don't always agree in the field. I know some people get very threatened when there's disagreement or when they hear a teacher or a trainer speak and that they don't agree with them, you know, that they think either they have to move over to their point of view or they're wrong in some way. And I really, you know, if you look back at the growth of psychology and, and well, really civilization probably, but let's keep it smaller, the <laughs> psychology, psychotherapy, body psychotherapy, the growth comes from disagreement. 
the growth comes from some people trained by one person and saying, well, I agree with some of those things, but I don't agree with all those things, so I'm going to go off and develop my own thing and use some of that and, and bring in some of my own, and then their students do the same and their students do the same. It's actually a bit of a problem in body psychotherapy and, and some other areas of psychology, I think, that many teachers and trainers feel threatened when their students do that, and I see it actually as a beneficial evolution of the field. I've done it. I expect my students to do it. I hope their students will do it. Other, otherwise, everything's going to go um, uh, to a standstill. Yeah. So in a way, as you say that, I'm tempted to jump into a possible controversial area and okay. to, uh, to talk about the fact that um, you like to say that uh, you know healing trauma is not necessarily something where you need to uh, explore past memories and that sometimes, in fact, it can be harmful. Well, what I believe is that the first goal of trauma treatment, really any treatment, should be to improve a person's quality of life. And mm-hmm. that has what they would really period and full stop after that, improve quality of life. That is the goal. And that, that opinion I would argue for quite hard. Um, and whatever serves that goal. So for some people, that will be processing trauma memories that will serve that goal of improving quality of life. And when processing trauma memories work for somebody and really help their their life go forward in a better way, help them be more stable, more involved, have better relationships, et cetera, et cetera, I'm a big fan of that kind of work. What I think has happened, though, in the trauma field, in body psychotherapy and psychotherapy in general, it's beca- it's become... The trend, the only thing to do um, to process trauma memories in some of our HMOs and and um, uh, clinics and even government health organizations like the NHS in the UK force people to work with clients with trauma memories no matter what the outcome looks like it's going to be. And we have a group of people who actually don't benefit from processing trauma memories. Their quality of life degrades. Mm -hmm. They get worse, even to the point of being hospitalized. And so being able to make judgments about and evaluations of who's who is benefiting, who's not benefiting, and even earlier, who's likely to benefit, who's not likely to benefit, um, can really push our work much more forward and help our clients at a much higher level. So if we start thinking about what we're doing with trauma, we're helping people recover. And recover improves quality of life. It doesn't always include processing memories. Yeah, yeah. So very, very strongly. But you say something about uh, recovering. So do you make a distinction between recovering, healing, resolving trauma? Um, Yes, I think, well, just because of what I'm saying, resolving trauma by the, by the vocabulary implies that you're processing memories, that you're resolving something. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, healing, eh, I don't know if that word belongs in psychotherapy, body psychotherapy. I think of it as quite a medical term, so I don't, I don't usually use it. I don't use healing and cure. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of, the, of, of resolving and recovering. Mm-hmm. And recover sort of um, uh, is an umbrella term that we would include any kind of 
improvement in someone to the point where they can live their life better, where they're stable, um, uh, their quality life has improved, and their general functioning as a part of that has improved. They're able to meet goals, have relationships, are satisfied themselves with how their life is. Um, and that's recovery. Yeah. And some people will get there from processing trauma memories. Some people will get there without processing trauma memories. And one of the things that, that people forget all the time that I think, you know, I'm distinguishing between the people who might benefit and the people who might not benefit. And that's something that we can fairly objectively look at when we're working with somebody is as we work with them, are they getting more stable? Are they getting more solid? Are they less dissociated? Are they more functional? All those things are going in the good direction. Are they getting more dissociated? Are they more dysfunctional? Are they starting to have trouble getting out of bed in the morning? Are they pulling back on their relationships? Are they having anxiety, increased anxiety and panic, etc.? That's not going in a good direction. So those things can be evaluated fairly objectively. But there's another extremely important reason why it would be a very bad idea to work with trauma memories. Mm-hmm. And it's one that people put aside, don't even think of, which I think is strange. Anyway, you might even laugh when I say it, because somebody doesn't want to. Hmm. Isn't that like the most common sense thing you've ever heard? Yeah. You don't work with trauma memories with somebody who doesn't want to work with trauma memories. And I know that a lot of people are forced into working with trauma memories, either by their therapist, by the clinic they go to, by the the health service that they're a part of or whatever. And to me, it's it's tantamount to, to re-traumatization. So when I'm hearing you talk about this, you know, in a way the, the parallel track that runs in my mind is a sense of profound respect for the person and that the focus is on the person, the person's need, the person's recovery, the person's quality of life, as opposed to the, quote, illness, you know, in a way the opposite right. of the medical model of, oh, right. you're diagnosed with an illness called trauma and we have to process the illness called trauma. Right, and respect for that person's individuality, mm-hmm. which means the way they may, will recover may look totally different from the way a thousand other people recovered. And that that individual difference also needs to be respected. Yes, absolute imperative to respect the individual and that they know their needs, their body, their mind, their life better than any helping professional. They may not be able to access all that information, but I think of part of my job as helping them access that information. Yes, so there is implicit in what you're describing that sense of empowerment in helping people uh, access that sense of knowing what's good for them. Absolutely. And being encouraged and supported to act on that, even if it disagrees with what I would like to do. Mm Mm-hmm. And within bounds, obviously, because part of our job is to protect people. So if somebody says, you know, the be- I know the best thing for me is to jump off the Empire State Building, of course, you're not going to encourage them to do that, right? Yes. But, um, but w- you know, within bounds, and for me, uh, one of those bounds might be um, the timing of when somebody talks about their trauma. So if someone does believe that, that, that processing or talking about their trauma memories is very important for them, for me to help them... Uh, 
with the timing of that so that when they do that, it actually will be beneficial rather than detrimental. Mm-hmm. You know, we we all know the kind of client who who comes into the office and and spills or regurgitates onto our rug everything that's ever happened to them. And in the process of doing that, they're dissociated. They don't even know we're in the room, so there's absolutely no contact in it. They get more unglued rather than feeling better, and it's not a beneficial experience. And some people have such pressure to do that, it's very hard sometimes to ask somebody to wait. But usually I would help them to understand that, well, possibly look at what's happened to them in the past when they've done that, and then help them to, you know, to see when you tell me your story, I want you to know I'm here supporting you. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. want you to be able to digest it and have it not make make you more um, uh, diffuse. More, I want it to help make you more solid. I want you to be able to process it rather than it just being a report or a, um, something that you're almost vomiting, you know, kind of thing. And usually people will understand that, and some will be very appreciative to be stopped in that way, to say, oh, wait a minute, oh, we could, I can wait, this won't hurt me to wait until I actually can do it in a way that will be healthy for me rather than not so healthy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so if the uh, purpose is not necessarily to, to process uh, memories of the trauma, or if it's actually even bad to do so, what happens in trauma therapy? Well, either the for the person for whom processing trauma memories is not going to be a good idea, and for the person for whom it may be a good idea tomorrow or next week or next year, the first steps have to do with stabilization and helping the person get control over their body and their life. Trauma has everything to do with being out of control. You're not in control of whatever the incident is that traumatized you because if you were in control, you you wouldn't have gotten traumatized. You would have been able to stop it or you wouldn't have been there or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one loss of control. That's the first loss of control in trauma is the incident itself. Then the person who's suffering in the wake of trauma with with PTSD, say, post-traumatic stress disorder, their body symptoms and their mind symptoms are totally out of control, and they feel out of control of their body and mind. They have symptoms of hyperarousal or hypoarousal, shifts in heart rate. They aren't able to concentrate. There may be big shifts in in appetite, concentration, etc. And in their mind... They're not in control of intrusive images, which might come in the form of visual images or auditory images, or um, even some of the body symptoms might be flashback kind of images. So there's a lot of things that the person with trauma that we see in our offices feels really out of control. And so I want to help that person feel in control of yeah. their body, of their mind, and to the ex- within the limits of my own boundaries – to feel in control in the in my room. Yeah, yeah. So that's a very very clear statement of um, of a priority of an emphasis is uh, seeing trauma as something that comes from lack of control at a moment where it would have been so important to have control, 
of being out of control in terms of the after effects of trauma and of empowering people, guiding people to regain control. Yes. Embody mind life, yes. Yes, yes. So what kinds of things do you do, um, you know, in obviously no two cases are the same, but some sense of some of the things you do to help people with that? Okay. Well, first of all, I'm always um, looking for resources. Even uh, the first thing I do is take a case history. Mm-hmm. And that's almost always possible there. I think there's only one client in my career where I didn't do that initially because it just wasn't possible. Um, but I recommend that because even though, you know, most people would come to me because I'm a trauma specialist. And so with trauma and so I really need to have a 3D picture of them, even though we know that what we're focusing on might be trauma. Mm-hmm. I, I want to still know also the mundane things and the and the stressful things that have happened that don't qualify as trauma but but may be highly stressful, you know, et cetera. I, like I said, I want a 3D picture. And um, we set some goals together and both short-term and, and long-term goals and then look at the short-term goals that may be necessary to reach them. And... The first things I'm wanting to help them with is to become more stable, more comfortable in their own skin, um, uh, more comfortable in their daily life. We may, for engaging any intervention, gauging any strategy, both with permission to them, I will describe to people what I might suggest and get their their um, acceptance or not. I think it's very important for trauma clients. I actually think it's important for all clients, but especially for trauma clients, to be fully informed so that I'm not doing anything with them that they're not in agreement mm-hmm. to. Because, it, again, it's it's both a part of respect and it's part of helping them regain control. Yeah, wouldn't make any sense with a trauma person to come into my office and have me do a lot of things to them that they have no say in. It's just another situation of being out of control. Yeah. So... Um, uh, and so I'm also wanting to gauge and teach the client to gauge what things help them and what things don't help them so that they can be more informed about the choices that they're making and how they're advising me to help them. Mm-hmm. And so for the people with whom uh, body awareness and focusing on body is something that helps them be more stable, um, I will often begin with body awareness um, because that's such a nice foundation, both as a body psychotherapy and for dealing with trauma, because so much of it does have to do with body symptoms. Yeah. Um, there will be a small group of people who don't do well with body awareness, and we'll skip that. Mm-hmm. Or they don't want to focus on the body for some reason. Again, respecting that, I don't want to. Um, so that's actually an interesting question for people who do body psychotherapy is, what do you do, uh, you know, when people don't want to deal with the body and you also want to respect them as do you still, are you still doing body psychotherapy in a way when you're consciously avoiding the body? Well, I think I'm doing body psychotherapy anytime I'm paying attention to the body. Okay. Because that's always giving me information and I'm always using... Uh, the body response as 
a major component of the gauges that I'm using to judge what's going on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, that's that's never a problem for me. Yeah, yeah. So the client doesn't want to focus on body because, first of all, are. because I'm going to respect that, and second of all, because I have a whole lot of other tools to use, and I'm and you can also talk about you know what comprises working with the body. Well, you know we might we might not work with body awareness, mm-hmm. but I might also encourage somebody to go to the gym and increase their their muscle tone. Mm-hmm. And we might look at where in their body, you know, muscle tone might be a good place to develop, even though we're not focusing a lot on awareness of the body, but maybe gauging that with other things like, um, do you feel more cheery or less cheery when we, you know, look at this muscle or do you, you know, does, does the, as one of my clients did, um, uh, that I wrote about in the body remembers when we were working together, when things weren't going well for her, she felt like our distance was getting much greater between us. It was almost like a, a tunneling kind of dissociation effect mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that she that she would get further away from me. And even though we were staying still in the same place, it would feel like I was getting further away. And so we used that a lot as a gauge for, you know, I, as we were working together on, on things, I would periodically stop and say, how's our distance? Yeah. You know, am I far away or am I like at a normal distance now? I never, in that perception of hers, I never be, I never came too close. Mm-hmm. In that it was always that she was pulling away, like, like I said, like a dissociation. But there's so many things you can use images in somebody's head. I had somebody once who had an image in her head of a rabbit and when we were doing things well, the, the bunny was happy and cheery and when things weren't going well, the bunny would look sad or scared or, or panicked, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. kind of thing. And so, so we could do a lot of things. I can be paying attention to the body and we might even do some, some things that will help the, the person's body be more calm and stable, but without necessarily paying direct attention. Yes. Yes, so they don't need to be actually describing what's happening in their body and paying attention to the specifics of sensation. Uh, as long as you are aware of, you pay attention to what's happening in their body and there is some form of feedback, some form of uh, symbolic communication about what's happening and some kind of a reflection on that. Right, and it's also important also for body psychotherapies to remember that working with the body isn't just working with everything below the neck. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, you know, and the heart rate and the, and the muscle tone and the, um, uh, heat and cold and all those kind of things. It also includes what's happening in the visual field and the auditory field and, um, you know, smell and, you know, et cetera. There, there are other senses to be included than just the proprioceptive ones. Yes. So in a way, that's where we come back. You mentioned Damasio earlier, and that's that sense of not staying with the old mind-body thing or thinking that, uh, uh, you know, brain is, uh, or, or that thoughts and are just uh, thoughts and, and, and disembodied, but you're seeing everything that's happening in the person as part of that complex organism of mind and body. Yes, and and as you say, in that important organism of mind and body, it's one of the things um, periodically when I have um, taught groups of body psychotherapists, again, I, uh, this may make you laugh, but being very important, when, when I'm teaching psychotherapists, I have to remember 
to remind them that the body is part of this whole person. When I'm teaching body psychotherapy, sometimes I have to remind them that the head and the mind are also part of the body. Yes, yes. And it's not just working with the emotion and just working with the, the below the neck body responses and the muscles and the energy, but also with the feelings and the the thoughts and the images and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. So you've talked about what happens with people who have difficulty dealing with body sensation, paying attention to what happens in the body, but I'm assuming most of the people who come to see you are actually fairly open to exploring what's happening in the body. I wouldn't make that assumption. Okay. I wouldn't make that assumption because um, uh, I, I'd say I don't even know if it's half and half or whatever, but um, a lot of people with trauma, even if they might um, be favorable toward body psychotherapy, might have so much discomfort in their body that they don't want to go there. Okay. Um, and I would say that when I'm teaching, I probably teach about half and half, people who work with body and people who don't work with body, or people who work directly with body as body psychotherapists and, and people who are psychotherapists interested about the body but not really paying much attention. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, but your question is about, um, can I speak to both kinds of clients? Yeah. Okay. So the person who is comfortable with body, um, I'm relying a lot on body awareness and wanting to really help them refine a very nuanced, um, uninterpreted body awareness. Not not a Jinlin focusing where there's interpretation, but just a very pure body awareness. This is a sensation here. This is a sensation there. This is what my body's doing now um, uh, in in movement, in tension, in temperature, you know, etc. And using that to help us move through whatever it is that we're moving through, whether it's daily life stabilization. Um, improving quality of life here and now, or whether that's processing a, a piece of trauma memory. Um, if it's working with here and now, helping them use that that refined, nuanced body awareness to um, uh, start investigating what happens in their daily life, what is happening with them with regard to trauma response, um, that we can help them be stabilized is recognizing triggers, what happens when they're triggered. Um, are there any things that they can do to counter that, or is it something that they just need to learn to surf and ride out, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's somebody that we're working with trauma memories, we're, we're taking a piece, not the whole thing at once, but uh, a, a piece of a trauma memory and processing it with both body and mind in, whatever method has been most appealing to the client, whether it's uh, um, a somatic experience in Peter Levine kind of way of tracking the body response through the different um, elements of awareness uh, that he calls his Saiban model, or whether it's working with the body dynamic running technique, or whether it's working with EMDR, 
um, but processing things in small bits and including mind and perception as part of that processing, not just the body response. Yes. So essentially that um, um, shifting people's attention from just the narrative to also paying attention to body sensation in a variety of ways and uh, that shift uh, is something that allows you to process the um, to process both in terms of a concept and in terms of body. It's also very important in terms of helping people um, move from memory to to here and now, memory here and now, because the perceptions of body awareness are very here and now. Yes. Feeling, feeling the sensation of my fingernail gouging my finger is one sensation. Stopping doing that and then remembering what that felt like is a very different sense, is, is a very different experience. So body awareness is a, is one of the strongest anchors to the here and now. It's really a huge friend for working with, with trauma because mm-hmm. it is the anchor to the here and now. And so when people can manage it and it doesn't um, uh, worsen their symptoms, it's it's such a great uh, tool to be able to use. And when you're working with trauma memories, to be able to move back and forth between all sorts of all sorts of uh, sensory that has to do with the here and now. So body awareness: what am I seeing now? What am I hearing now? What am I smelling in this room now? In contrast to my memories of what my body felt like, what I saw, what I thought, what I, um, what something smelled like then, etc. Because that's um, really I didn't say that before, but that's sort of when you're working with trauma memories, really the the core task is to help somebody recognize the memories as memories. Yeah. And relegate them to their their past as any other memory. Yeah. So the very and, very clear sense of this was then and this is now. Yes, exactly. And exactly. Uh, and and that you know, uh, the most direct way there is of doing that is uh, the experience of present moment experience and physical sensation gives you a very clear experience of this is now. And in contrast, you understand better this was then. Right. And that's, and that's the core of the, the mechanism really for, for example, helping someone stop a flashback, which is such a common, uh, occurrence with people with PTSD and, and, and doing that whether you're working with somebody, um, on, on here and now stabilization or whether you're working with them in processing memories, to be able to stop a flashback, which is a very intense memory experience, by having them connect to the here and now strongly using extraceptive senses, sight, hearing, taste, touch, smell, so that they can really distinguish, oh, that that's, that's going on is not happening now, no matter how much it feels like it's happening now, it's not going on now, it's a very intense memory. And I can have that intense memory at the same time that I can see that I'm in this room in this year um, and seeing certain things, hearing certain things, knowing of the age I am, etc. The contrast between now mm-hmm. and then. Okay. And so 
In this sense, um, you know, you said a little earlier that uh, when you work with um, body awareness, it's in that very uh, uh, sensation mode, uh, not the felt sense as Jenlin understands it. So uh, I assume that's because as you work with body sensation, body awareness at that very raw level, uh, it's the one that's most associated with here and now as opposed to being contaminated. Correct. Yes. Correct. Not necessarily contaminated, but, you know, you would use a more, a more felt sense focusing type of body awareness for other things. Yes. You know, it's not that it doesn't have a place. I just don't think it works well in trauma therapy. Yes. As, um, for as, exactly that reason that you're saying, yes. Yeah. To, uh, to really anchoring people in that very, very sense of the moment. Correct. Yes. Correct. And I'll, and I'll give one, one, um, one big mistake I think trauma therapists do, whether they're body psychotherapists or psychotherapists. And I think this is a big mistake and remember it's my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, I think it's a big mistake and that correcting it can really change how people manage trauma therapy. When you're working with people on memories, to have them use past tense verb rather than present tense verb. I see so many times when people I hear, and I, we all used to do it. I, I used to do it too when, you know, the, the field grows and we get better informed. But um, to have somebody remembering a trauma and saying, I'm in the place, the person is here, I'm feeling this, all in present tense does nothing but confuse tremendously confuse all sorts of brain parts because it's not happening now, so why are you talking about it happening now? Right, right. So why you're are you re- regarding it as happening now? It's very, very, very confusing to the mind and body. Right. And it will really yeah. change things drastically to insist the clients use past tense verb when they're referring to their trauma. Even when they're having a flashback, I insist people change to past tense verbs. He's not here now. You're remembering when he was here. You yeah. remember that did happen, and really insisting on that really changes the manageability of what they're dealing with and the sanity of it. Yeah, because it's, it's telling the truth. Um, what I'm hearing is it's in a way something where uh, you know, in a way like in the computer where you have a full frame or you have some framing around something, and here uh, you have. As you're revisiting the experience, you're doing it with a frame that keeps repeating, by the way, this was then, uh, as opposed to being put right in the middle of it. Correct. Correct. And telling the truth about it. What we're dealing with is something that happened in the past. That is the truth. And every way that we refer to it, whether we're stopping a flashback or whether we're formally processing the memories with whatever method, Mm-hmm. We're telling the truth that that was in the past. We're never confusing the past and present. And so that's a context of this is not just a, uh, a little trick or a little tool, or but this is very consistent with the general approach, as you said earlier, of um, separating the past from the present and Correct. helping people regain control in a place where they didn't. So it's about, again, uh, that general strategy as opposed to simply being a little technique. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. 
So as we're coming to the end, how would you, um, how would we conclude this conversation? Understanding that obviously we've not touched upon a lot of things that are important. <laughs> <laughs> that would be another disclaimer. I do 12-day trainings, yeah. <laughs> um, what do you, well, can I throw it back to you? What do you think would be most useful for the folk who are listening? Um, what strikes me, actually, as I hear you talk, is the fact that while you have a very sophisticated and very complex understanding and a lot of passion for lots of uh, aspects of trauma, there is also a sense of having come to um, a sense of some solid, uh, you know, rock-bottom principles that uh, color what you do. And uh, so there's something in a way that strikes me as being um, um, very empowering, very, um, very much the opposite of the experience of loss of control and confusion uh, right. of the trauma, but of right. having that solidity, which is also the opposite of oversimplification. I mean, you're certainly somebody who doesn't want to go into, uh, you know, this is one truth, this is the truth, and, right. and, and open to more complexity. But I'm struck by that sense of actually really having that, uh, that clarity as being a guiding principle. And I'm curious about how you react when I, when I describe it this way. I agree. Um, I think that's a nice way to describe it. And, um, you know, I might have used different words, but I, um, I really think the core of, of my point of view, the core of my approach, what I teach is, um, respect for the individual, empowerment of the individual. I'm looking always for my client to be my partner in the process, not my, um, patient. Mm-hmm. Um, I want them to educate me, um, and uh, I consider them to be the expert on themselves. Even though I may have some opinions that disagree with or want to postpone some things that, like I said, like spilling trauma memories prematurely or something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Babette. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website, relationalimplicit.com. Respect for the individual, empowerment of the individual. I'm looking always for my client to be my partner in the process, not my um, patient. Mm -hmm. Um, I want them to educate me. and uh, I consider them to be the expert on themselves. Even though I may have some opinions that disagree with or want to postpone some things that, like I said, like spilling trauma memories prematurely or something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Babette. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website, relationalimplicit.com.